Welcome to The Better's Verdict, a Herbert Smith Freehills podcast on gambling law. And we have a great story lined up for you today. So far on this pod, I've had lots of superstar lawyers and very talented professors of the law. But today we're going the other way and we have a superstar gambler. So I'm extremely excited to have on Todd Watellis, who is a professional gambler and has been for a very long time successfully, and the host of Poker Fraud Alert Radio, which is also a great show to listen to. Todd, welcome. Thank you very much, Stephen. First of all, can you briefly describe your background? We don't get many uh, guests on this show, as I just said, who have been gambling as long as you have successfully. Yeah, well, uh, my background actually has kind of two phases to it, because I'm one of the... uh, older poker pros. I wasn't one of these guys who got into it right out of college because by the time the whole poker boom really got started in the early 2000s, I was already uh, well past college. So I actually got a master's degree in computer science and I worked in the software industry for uh, several years. And I believed at the time that was going to be what I would be doing for a career for the rest of my life. But uh, I started to get into poker in 2001 And it took about two years for me to become good enough to become a winning poker player. But by 2003, I was a winning poker player. And I started considering maybe I should do this professionally. Maybe I should quit my job and have more time to do this because I was winning a lot. And I figured I could win more if I had more time to do it and didn't have to quit the good games at uh, four in the morning so I could get a few hours of sleep before work. So that is what I did. And I said, you know what, if it doesn't work out, if I lose, then I'll go back to working as a a software developer. And it did work out. So I haven't had a regular job since I left 18 years ago. And uh, that was kind of when the second phase of my life started, which hasn't ended yet. So that is generally my background. As you mentioned, I also run a podcast called Poker Fraud Alert Radio, which is a very, very long podcast, probably the longest one you'll ever download. It averages like six hours a week, sometimes even longer in one in one shot. All at once, right? Yeah, all at once broadcasted live. So it's a it's a pretty my my throat is actually sore by the time it's over every time. But we do this every week, usually on Friday night, sometimes Saturday night, and it's on pokerfraudalert.com. So I, I run that as well. And I'm not running that for profit or anything, though. It's just something that I do kind of as a service to the poker community. We talk about uh, all kinds of issues in gambling and poker and Las Vegas. And uh, I especially like to focus on frauds in the gambling world and the poker world. But we discuss other general news as well. So that's essentially what I do these days. And we're going to get into a story in that in that vein in a moment. But I just wanted to seize upon a, a phrase you said. You said oh, you became a winning poker player in 2003, and you haven't looked back since. Um, we, we've gone over various gambling laws in, uh, across different states on this show in previous episodes, and many of them define gambling as games that are predominantly chance or games with a material degree of chance. I guess my question to you is, How is it that almost no one doubts that poker is a game that has some chance in it, certainly a material degree of chance, some would argue it's predominantly chance. How is it that it is possible that you have been a winning poker player for 20 years in a game that has a material degree of chance at minimum? That's a good question. And 
because it's a combination of skill and chance that eventually over time, even though you may go through losing streaks because of the chance element, you you end up a winning player if in the games you're playing that you are the a better than average player in the game. If you're a an overall favorite to win, even if you don't win today or tomorrow or yesterday, if you really are a better than average player in the games you're playing in, eventually time will smooth that out and you will win over time. And uh, that's what all professional poker players should seek to do is to play in games they can feel they can beat, not the game they wish they could beat or hope they could beat or they're delusional and think they can beat when they really can't, but to be realistic, to sit in games where you really are one of the favorites to win and also to, of course, always have the proper bankroll for whatever level you're playing. So if you play something way too high and you have a streak of bad luck, then you'll be broke and you can't continue playing because you have no money, no more money to play. So, uh, a lot of being a winning poker player over time comes not just from skill at the table, but also responsibility, also being realistic, also just knowing your limitations, being honest with yourself and managing your money properly. And there's some great poker players skill wise, ones who are better than me, who are broke because they're not good at those other things. They're great at the table, but they're very bad at managing their money. And if you have no more money, you can't play anymore. So in order to be a long-term successful poker pro, you really do have to have all these aspects. You have to be able to have the skill to beat the game, and you have to have the responsibility and the realistic view of your own abilities in order to succeed. Mm. A way that I like to describe uh, that's those sort of bankroll concepts for people that aren't familiar with them, as I say, well, if someone out there has $20,000 total to their name and they're offered a bet where they can do a coin flip at 50-50 odds and they win $200,000 if they win, but they lose everything they have if they lose, even though that's a spectacular bet, you're getting 10 to 1 odds there. Maybe under certain circumstances you shouldn't do it, even if it is great. And that, I think that's what you're describing in terms of what it takes to win in the long run. Because even though there's a good bit of luck in poker, you don't know what cards are going to turn. If you're never risking everything and you're always slightly ahead on the odds, 51%, 52%, then you're going to win in the long run, right? Yes. And in fact, the concept you described sometimes comes into play where there's a very high limit game where you know you're far better than the average person at the table, but you just don't have enough money where if you have bad luck, it could just destroy you. There are some uh, games like private games that take place where there's uh, celebrities and very rich businessmen playing. And first of all, it's very difficult to get invited to such a game. They don't like just bringing in random poker pros. But even if I were to be invited to such a game, those play at such a high stakes level that I would not play them no matter how much of a favorite I am over them because uh, I simply don't have the money to withstand those type of swings because they have pots that go for millions of dollars and I, I'm on the wrong side of one of those, and I'm done. I'm done for good, not just in that game, but completely. So you always have to think of that when playing, and if you keep taking those risks, even if you are a favorite of the game, eventually the variance is going to get you, and you're going to have some bad luck, and you're going to be out. So uh, it, it is like what you described with the coin flip. You just always have to be realistic and responsible with your play, and then uh, 
you can continue to survive. And of course, another thing you have to do is you have to evolve with the game. The game today is different than the game 20 years ago. It's different than the game 10 years ago and five years ago. So you have to observe how your other opponents are playing, especially the good ones. And you have to make changes to counter their changes. And if you don't, then you're going to fall off. And I've seen this too with people who were very good players in the early 2000s or mid 2000s that all of a sudden couldn't win anymore and they were gone. So if you don't adapt, if you don't evolve, then that's another problem where you have to always make sure that you really are still a favorite in the games you're playing and not just count on the fact that you were winning 10 or 15 years ago. Mm. And the high degree of chance can sometimes obscure even the best player's judgment because it can sometimes be difficult to tell if you are just on an unlucky streak or, or if you're falling behind. And that's one of the many things that makes a poker career like you've carved out so difficult. Yes, that's very true. Uh, there's been times in all poker players' careers, including mine, where you're on a big losing streak and you start to doubt yourself. You start to think, well, maybe I'm not that good. Maybe I only, I only won till this point because I was lucky. Or maybe I won before because the game was different, but in today's game, I just can't win. You start to have these doubts about yourself and you start to think just you're much worse than you thought you were. Then there's times where you're just winning every day and you feel like you're the best player in the world and you feel like, well, you know, maybe I just got better. Maybe I'm really one of the best in the world now. Maybe I just can't lose because I'm that good. And you have to catch yourself in both of those forms of thinking and say, wait a minute, I'm never going to win at this rate like I'm winning on this streak and it's going to go back to normal. I'm going to come back down to earth and I have to be prepared for that. And when I'm losing badly, I have to look and say, okay, is this because there's something wrong with my game here or just this game doesn't match up well with me? Or is it that I'm just having really bad luck or might it be a combination of both? And should I stay the course or maybe should I adjust something? And that's the hardest part when you're losing to determine that and then see the right course of action. And I have taken action before when things aren't going well. Sometimes I'll step down limits, sometimes just to build up confidence again. Sometimes I will make modifications to my game if I see something's not working. And you have to be constantly looking for things like this and not just get yourself in a spiral where you end up broke. So yeah, there's, mm -hmm. these are all challenges that every poker player faces and that some people can handle and some can't. And the truth is, as sad as it, as sad as it is, a very high percentage of people who attempt to be professional poker players do not last and go broke. So in order mm -hmm. to be in that smaller percentage who does not, you have to adhere to these different philosophies. And today, that's a good transition. We're going to be talking about a a sort of poker law story that relates to a game in which one player won and many players lost, but maybe not for the same reasons we were just discussing. We'll, we'll have to see. Um, so this story started in California. There was a game at a casino. What was the casino called? It's called Stone's Gambling Hall. It's in the Sacramento area. Yes. So... This casino, for a long time, had a game, a poker game live, where there were cameras showing people's cards. Some of our listeners may see this on ESPN when they're showing the World Series of Poker, and you can see the, the players' cards. So they had this game, but it wasn't a tournament like the World Series of Poker. It was just a typical poker game with chips that stand in for cash going back and forth between players. And to tell us what happened in this game... 
Well, this is a game that, as you said, was a live-streamed cash game, and people were watching it as it was running live, except with a 15-minute delay. And the reason for the 15-minute delay is that if there wasn't that delay, then people's friends could text them, hey, the guy you're playing against has pocket aces. You know, people could tip off their friends as to what the players have in their whole card. So you have to have that right. delay of at least 15 minutes, so the hand is long over by the time it shows. But it's very close to live, and people enjoy watching this. And this has been a popular thing on the internet for a while. It wasn't invented by Stones. The best-known version of this is something called Live at the Bike, which is run by the Bicycle Casino in Los Angeles. And that version of it has been going for many, many years, more than 10 years. And stones made their own version of it they're in a different area of the state they're in the northern part of california and they decided to run their own version of what like what life in the bike has going saying maybe there's enough audience for a second version of this so they ran it and it actually grew in popularity and it probably exceeded their expectations it started to put stones on the map as more than just a local sacramento area casino because when you think of a hotbed of poker, a place that you would go to play poker. You'll think of Las Vegas, you'll think of Los Angeles, you'll think of Atlantic City. You won't think of Sacramento. Sacramento is not a, a major center for poker. But because of this stream and because of the notoriety it brought to Stones, people started coming in. Big-name poker players started coming in to play on the Stones stream. And they also started holding tournaments there that uh, would bring people in because they knew about Stones. So it was successful in making Stones a more relevant room beyond just a little locals room in Sacramento. So everything was going very well. In fact, mm -hmm. I even played on that stream in 2017. I drove all the way from Los Angeles to do it. Uh, and I was not part of the controversial situation, which was going to develop uh, shortly after that, but uh, that had not started yet when I played in 2017. But yeah, a lot of people were doing this. A lot of people were coming from a long way to Why play. Why is on it attractive for players to come? Why did you go from Las Vegas just to play on this game? Well, actually, I, I went from the LA area. I'm not in Las Vegas oh. anymore, but uh, but it's still pretty far. It's still uh, 360 uh, miles or so to get there, maybe even more. So uh, I went there because I heard that it was a good game and also just for the novelty of being on there and having people who listen to my podcast or read my forum to watch me play. I played a 100-200 limit hold'em game, which isn't as big as it sounds. 100-200 no limit is a much bigger game than limit hold'em because of the uh, the betting structure. But it's still, you know, thousands of dollars go back and forth in that game as well. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I, I drove there, one, because I heard it was a good game, and, and two, uh, just, just to be on there, just as kind of a novelty. And that's basically the reason a lot of people were coming there. It was just uh, a thing to do, kind of a fun thing to do. And also, it was believed that, that the games there were very good, that there's a lot of action, a lot of players who weren't very good, a lot of opportunities to make money. So it's kind of a two-pronged reason people were coming there. Mm. So when you're watching the game, you can sort of get a feel for the players because you're seeing their cards on the stream and, and sort of you know what you're getting into a little bit more when you show up there. Yeah, especially because there were some regular players that were in that game. So you're not going to be sure if the game you show up to is going to have those same players. But uh, there were a number of people who honestly weren't all that good that were regularly playing in that game. So people would be enticed to want to go there and play with those people and win money from them. Right. So now, as people may be able to envision, 
this setup with cameras on everyone's cards creates a situation that is rife for possible cheating. Because if anyone at the table were to have access to those camera streams, they would know what everybody had. So t tell us what happened on that front. Do we think that that ha ever happened? Um, t t tell us about the story of Mike Postel. Okay, before I get to that, I do want to say that, yes, this has always been kind of an outside concern of these televised streams of what if somebody with access to seeing these cards live, not 15 minutes later, but as it's being recorded, because obviously if it's being recorded live, then someone can see the whole cards, even if it's not broadcasted till 15 minutes later. So what mm -hmm. if there is somebody who is not very honest on the other end? And I'm talking about all streams, not just uh, the one at Stones, any stream that does this. There is a potential for cheating, and that's everybody's been aware of that. You don't have to be a genius to figure that out. So people have always wondered, might there be a scandal one day where this has occurred? And at the beginning when this was going on, people were especially worried about it. In fact, it made it into a major network TV program. It was fictionalized, but uh, that old show called Las Vegas from the 2000s. That had, mm, uh, James Caan. Yeah, yeah. There was, a, there was an episode where uh, Howard Lederer, a famous uh, poker pro, uh, he was it, he was a guest star in this episode in helping catch a cheater that was in this episode. And this is, again, completely fictionalized, but there was a teacher who was just uh, like an amateur player who was just killing everyone on one of these streams that was taking place in this casino that was depicted in this TV show. And uh, it turned out the cameraman was in cahoots with her and making the camera flash a light whenever someone was bluffing. And this way she always, or whether she should call, like he would send little coded messages through the camera light to where she'd know what to do. So she always knew the right move to make and she destroyed everyone, including Howard himself. And then he was saying that uh, there's something wrong here and eventually they figured it out and they arrested her. But this was of course fiction. This was written by somebody. So. It's not like when people saw this, they said, oh, wow, you know, this is a huge scandal. It was something that was just uh, an episode for TV. But it shows that there was paranoia about this to where it even made it into a, a network TV program and written as a plot. But up until 2018, there was never any real legitimate suspicion that such a thing actually had happened or was happening. Yeah, there will be those conspiracy theorists who will see someone playing really well and somehow always uh, making the right move and saying, OK, I wonder if they're cheating in some way. But there was never any kind of serious, credible accusation and never anyone who played so amazingly well and made so many amazingly right decisions that uh, there would have been material for such a credible accusation. Uh, some people who listen to this podcast here probably don't know poker very well, and you might picture that a really good poker player is just someone who can read your soul and always just somehow magically figure out what cards are in your hand. And often when p poker is depicted on TV or in the movies, that is how it's shown. The very best players are depicted as people who just somehow have an otherworldly ability to know what the other person has. Now, you can sometimes deduce this if you're a very good player or or narrow it down to a few hands and then make a, a very good decision. And we've seen examples of that, but there's limitations. There's only so far you can take that. There's, it's, it's, you can only be so good at knowing what hands your opponents have and taking action based upon that information. And then of course, there's the matter of how many times are you doing it? You can make a lucky guess or semi-lucky guess that you think someone has a certain hand 
and act accordingly and you turn out to be right and you look like a genius. But if you try that a hundred times, it's impossible to get that right 100 out of 100. And There's needless no- to say, if if a poker player did know through cheating or some other way exactly what cards other people had at the table, would anybody else have a chance? No, they would have uh, just about no chance because when somebody knows what whole cards you have, then they know exactly when to put money in, when to not put money in, and when they can run you off of hands. Because let's say you have a mediocre hand. If uh, your opponent knows this, if they know 100% you have a mediocre hand, they can just keep hammering you with really, really large bets to where you're going to be afraid to call those bets because you say, hey, my hand's not good enough. I don't want to put thousands of dollars behind this hand that can be beaten by so many different hands. So you'll probably give this up. Now, the reason this doesn't happen as often when people don't know your hand is because uh, for all they know, they could be betting into uh, a really, really strong hand that is going to call them and then they're going to waste their money. So knowing what the other person has, number one, allows you to bluff them way more or even rebluff them if they bluff you by re-raising them. And also, you know when not to put money in when they do have a very strong hand. So if you can see someone has the very best possible hand or something far better than your hand and they're putting in money and you know you have almost no chance to catch up, you just fold. Even if your hand is otherwise pretty good, if you know you're way behind that person and you can see that, then you can just let your hand go. And like they always say, a penny saved is a penny earned. So you not only can make money from this person by seeing what they have, but you can save money that you would otherwise have lost to this person under normal circumstances. So it's an incredible advantage. This is something where it's just about impossible to beat someone who is playing this way unless they are intentionally losing some hands to make it look like that they're not as amazing as uh, yeah, to, to where we would arouse suspicion. So that's uh, if someone were to do that, they would almost surely win just about every time. And that... Uh, is what people have feared, but yet, as I said, in these streamed games, there had never once been any kind of indication that this was happening until 2019 when an accusation was made. So, so yeah, let's talk about 2019. So this game at Stones had been going for a while. Um, it was popular. Um, what happened? How? What accusation? How did it break? Well... In late September 2019, a woman who was both a commentator in the game and also a player in the game, and in fact also sometimes recruited people to come to the game, she wasn't a Stones employee, but I think she worked for them on kind of like a contract basis. But So she did a number of different things involving that game. She made an accusation on Twitter that there was cheating in the game and that the cheating was being done by an individual named Mike Possel. Mike Possel had been playing in that game for at least a year and a half, and he had been killing it. He was by far the most successful person, and he was really, really winning at an alarmingly high rate. And not only that, but it seemed like every time that he was in a hand, he was making the right decision. It just seemed impossible to outthink him, to outplay him, to bluff him, to catch his bluffs. It just seemed like he always made the right move. And it also just seemed like he was really, really lucky. So just about every time he was winning, there were some exceptions, but he was winning at an extremely high rate that no one else on that stream or on any stream had ever done before. 
And this went on for about a year and a half. And he played roughly once a week, sometimes more than once a week. Sometimes uh, he didn't play in certain weeks, but he played a lot, as I said, about once a week, give or take, for about a year and a half on the stream. So it's a long time to play perfectly. It would be very difficult for even the greatest players in the world to play perfectly for over a year once a week. Yeah, so... People watching the stream knew he was winning a lot. In fact, the stream was promoting him. They even uh, made a little graphic depicting him as Jesus because it looked like he was that good. So they were they were having a lot of fun on the stream promoting how great he was. And he was a big draw to the stream, even though prior to that, he was not a big name in poker at all. If you asked the average person in poker who wasn't from the Sacramento area, who was Mike Possel? If you asked them that like in 2017, uh, Almost everybody would not have known. I had never heard the name before, and I've been doing uh, poker podcasts for many, many years, even going back before I did my current one. I go back to the 2000s doing poker podcasts. I never heard of him before this. So he was kind of an unknown player. He's been around in poker since the 2000s, but he was kind of a not very well-known player until this. But all of a sudden, he shows up there and plays better than any poker player that had ever been seen. And when I say any poker player, I really mean any poker player. I can tell you as somebody who is an expert in poker that watching him and I was able to go back and watch from the beginning when the allegations started, because basically Veronica made these allegations in September 2019. But Stones kept an archive of every game that they ever streamed. So you could go and watch from their Web page all the different streams that they had. They were up on YouTube and you could watch all the different streams going back years. So people were able to identify the beginning of when he started to play amazingly well and the year and a half that passed between then and late September 2019. I think it was like from the beginning of 2018 through the end of 2019 or through the fall of 2019. And, uh, you were able to go back and watch not just uh, what was presently happening, but you were able to go and watch what had happened over the past year and a half. And I can tell you from watching those streams that I've never seen anyone read hands that well, make that many correct decisions in big spots. It just seemed like uh, there was never a poker player born ever that was as good as Mike Possel. And that was really strange for a guy that was basically unknown prior to that. So this would be a little bit like, a sort of run-of-the-mill baseball player, a 200 hitter that hits 10 home runs a year, suddenly one year batting 400 and hitting 60 home runs or something like that. Yeah, but it's even worse because uh, uh, in baseball, at least you can say, well, sometimes people just find their swing. They just they just figure out something or they they work out more or they they get a good hitting coach. There, there can be reasons, and we've seen it before in baseball where this has happened, where someone who just isn't very good uh, suddenly improves, and it turns out that they weren't even cheating in any way. They just happened to be uh, doing some things or just get better or kind of figure things out. In poker, you just don't have it where somebody goes abruptly from an unknown to being really the best ever. I don't mean one of the best ever. I mean the best ever. And you know this from watching hours and hours of this stream dating back a year and a half, you can see. And you can see that there's no player you can ever find on any stream anywhere, no matter how well-known or how successful, that played as well as he did there. And that's 
a fact, if you, if you look at his win rate, if you look at his uh, uh, success rate in large pots where he played and with being able to pick off when people are bluffing him and when, when he's bluffing others and when he's calling and when he's raising, it's, it's perfect. It is amazingly good to where I've never seen a poker player play like that before. Got it. So when this broke, and by by breaking I mean Veronica made these accusations and it spread like wildfire across poker Twitter and everyone had an opinion on it, of course. So so what happened with those opinions? Well, this blew up very fast because this is something everyone always kind of feared in the back of their minds, as I mentioned earlier. And here was the first time that there was enough to start having some real suspicions. And also people could go back and look. It wasn't just you had to rely on your memory or other people's third-hand accounts. You could go look for yourself on these videos. In addition, some very well-known YouTube personalities like Doug Polk and Joey Ingram, who had uh, a pretty big following in poker, uh, they started doing episodes where they would watch these old streams that were made available by Stones where Mike Possel was playing and would comment on it and comment on the way the hands were going down. And these guys weren't just uh, YouTube broadcasters. These guys were successful poker players themselves. In fact, Doug Polk is one of the most uh, successful no-limit cash players of all time. So these were guys who obviously had a lot of knowledge, and they also had a big following. And a lot of people were watching their YouTube streams and their analysis of Mike Possel's play. And then every person who's ever played poker recreationally or professionally would watch these streams or would watch the videos themselves and they would all kind of come to the same conclusion I did that they've never seen anything like this before they've never seen anyone be right to such a high degree like Mike Postle was whenever a big pot would go down I mean yeah occasionally there'd be a pot with not very much money in there where he would make a wrong decision but those are kind of inconsequential because he's not losing very much but anytime a lot of money was going in, or even a medium amount of money was going in, it just seemed like he was right. And this went all the way back a year and a half. And you'd watch Joey Ingram stream, and he would bring up uh, videos from a year prior. And they'd say, let's, let's watch this from a year prior. And go, wow, same story. So uh, th- this was happening so often, and this really got everyone's attention because they'd never seen anything like this before. And this really became a huge topic. In fact, I said this is one of the biggest stories ever in poker. But even though I have a podcast, even though I aggressively cover poker news, especially scandals in poker, it just so happened at this time in in late September that uh, I was unavailable to really comment on this for a little while because uh, I I could have quickly said something, but I said, you know what? This is such a big story. I don't want to just put out a one or two sentence analysis of it. I want to, I want to really watch all these. I want to decide for myself. I don't want to go by what uh, Joey Ingram says or Doug Polk says, or what everyone on poker Twitter is saying. I want to watch for myself. I want to come up with my own opinion here. And I just didn't have time. I just wasn't available to do this in uh, late September when, when the allegations came out by a woman named uh, Veronica Brill. So it took several days in fact, maybe close to a week until I came out uh, with my own opinion on this, which ended up mirroring 
the vast majority of the poker community. It was uh, it was almost unanimous, it seemed, in the poker community, especially among uh, poker players who had any kind of respect. I'm not talking about Twitter trolls, but I'm talking about you know just respected or semi-respected players in the poker community. It was uh, almost unanimous that something was very odd here. And upon looking at these myself, I came to that same conclusion. And keep in mind, I had no bias here because I'd never met Mike Postle before in my life. And I didn't have any reason to come down on this one way or the other. And also, my podcast is known for one that doesn't just follow what everybody else says. I I don't care about being popular in poker. I don't care about uh, coming to the conclusions everyone else does. I will often argue with people on poker Twitter about things. I'm really one of these people who just says what I think. And uh, I don't care about how people are going to react to my opinion. So I would never have just gone along with uh, what everyone was saying just to not rock the boat or or be popular. Like I've had a situation before where uh, everyone was convinced that uh, the Rio security was really badly to have someone safe robbed there. And then when I looked at the situation, I said, you know what? I actually don't think the Rio is at fault. I think this person's roommate was probably the one involved. I, I wouldn't blame the Rio here. It looks more, much more likely that the person's roommate did it. That was an unpopular opinion at the time. A lot of people gave me a hard time. So I will break from the popular crowd regarding beliefs on things. But watching this, to me and to everybody else in poker, it just seemed obvious that something was very peculiar. And So, so the stayed- weight of the opinion, not just your opinion – but really most of the people or maybe even close to all of the people who are really educated in this space said this, there's just something that seems fishy here. And our opinion is there's something wrong and maybe he had access to the feed. Now we don't know that that's true because no one can know if it's true except for him and, you know, maybe anybody he was working with if he was, but, but that was the opinion you came to after, after studying everything. Yes. uh, Upon looking at it from my own expert opinion in the matter, I just said, there's no way that for a year and a half that he could be so consistently right with all these decisions in big or medium spots where there's a lot of money or these medium money at stake. It just seems that uh, he is right so many times and uh, he had so many hands he was playing there over this period of time. You'd think that once, and I even said this, I said this publicly, I said, Mike, can you please come out and show us one big pot where you made the wrong decision, where you bluffed into someone holding a very strong hand that would never fold it and that nobody who could see the cards would bluff into? Can you show one major wrong decision you made in this year and a half? Not something where the pot was tiny and and someone bluffed you and you fold it or, or the pot was tiny and uh, it, and you – didn't put as much money in as you could have to win a little bit more. I'm talking about big spots that would have cost you a lot of money to be wrong. Show me one of those because every poker player will run into that situation after playing. Even Phil Ivey, Doyle Brunson, the legends, they could all point to hundreds of examples probably in the last year or even shorter of times when they made big mistakes. Yes, especially aggressive poker players, because there's poker players who who bluff a lot, who put a lot of money in and play very aggressively. And then there's others who are known as tight players, ones who really don't want to put money in unless they have a really, really excellent hand. So 
when you're an aggressive poker player, it is impossible to play that way and not sometimes be wrong, not sometimes get your money in when your opponent has the very best possible hand or very close to it, and you have no possible way to win the hand and you've just blown money. That's the that's inevitable to happen if you're going to be aggressive, but you hope that your aggression will make up for it in other spots. So what never happens is where an aggressive player is just always right with his aggression. He puts in a lot of money when his player has a weak hand and he puts in very little money or folds when his opponent has a strong hand. It's impossible to have that with such 100% certainty in the medium and big spots if you're going to be an aggressive player. And that's what I was seeing from the videos I was watching. I, that was what was absent as any wrong move in a big spot. And I even put it out there. I said, I'd like to see it. I, because he, he was tweeting at first in his defense, and he even provided a few examples of hands where he was wrong. But these were these were hands which not a lot of money went in. And I said, look, I'm, I really... I'm not on either side here. And if you're innocent, I'll, I'll be very glad to go to bat for you. I'll be very glad to buck the trend and tell everybody that uh, they're wrong and that, uh, or at least there's some reasonable doubt. So can you please show me some hands that you played where you put in a lot of money and were wrong? And he never did. Now, I didn't watch every minute of the year and a half worth of the stream, and I wasn't going to put the time into doing that. It just... Uh, I don't have time for that, and it wasn't important enough for me to do. But I would figure to him it would be, and he'd probably remember some of these if he was you know, always being right except for these few big times. So, And he had a lot of time to do it. And I said, show me. And I, I'm still happy to take a look at it at this point because I haven't seen every minute. But uh, I saw a lot of the streams, and I couldn't find even one. So uh, I, I was hoping – he would come forward and show it or one of his friends would come forward and show it. And it just never happened. So you, like many others, publicly stated your opinion here. Um, and I guess Mike Possel didn't like that people were stating their opinions that maybe something fishy was going on in this game. So what happened next? Well, there was actually a lawsuit against him. Uh, that uh, was accusing him of cheating, that uh, there were 87 plaintiffs. This was not a class action. This was actually a, a lawsuit with just 87 plaintiffs. This case was brought, and they sued both Mike Possel, and they sued Stones and the director of this game named Justin Caritas. So all these people were sued. Uh, I On believe behalf of the other players in the game? On behalf of 87 plaintiffs in the game that joined into the suit. Not every player in the, in the game, but the people who joined with a Verstandic suit. So essentially, some of the people that lost money to Mike Postle said, we want to get our money back. We think we were cheated, so we're going to get together and all sue him. Right. And they, they sued him and they sued the casino and also the director of that game. So unfortunately for them, the suits didn't go very well. And it was really due to the way California law is written to where it's uh, uh, it's very tough to recover gambling losses in the state of California. And so what happened was in this suit against Mike Postle, it was dismissed, even though he, he didn't have an attorney. He had one that was assisting him. That, uh, it seems like that was, you know, as far as putting together the responses, but he didn't actually have counsel representing him, but he was still able to beat it even with this kind of like background assistance because California law is so weak on this and there just was not any kind of uh, 
legal precedent that could be used to uh, to successfully beat him. And uh, for that reason, it was dismissed. And there's a, a common uh, incorrect belief about uh, what happened there when this was dismissed. I, this was in uh, mid-2020. It was dismissed. There's a common belief that uh, it got dismissed because uh, Mike Postle proved he was innocent. That's not true. It never even got to that point. It was dismissed long before that. Basically, it was said that uh, these plaintiffs uh, were, would not be able to collect any damages against him because of the way California law is written. It was just a uh, – it's just unfortunately the law is immature in this area. So that, the, the law is not known generally for protecting gamblers in California or elsewhere. Um, it's just not not a group that legislators care much about protecting. I think. Yes, that's that's definitely true. So that was so. Postle won that he, as the defendant. So he got out of that, and there, he did not have to pay any damages. There was no judgment against him. Uh, regarding Stones and Justin Caradus, a settlement was reached, but a very token settlement that, uh, in my opinion, I, I didn't like to see very much. Uh, I, I didn't like it, and I, I wasn't part of it. I wasn't part of either of those actions because I was never a player in the game. I had no standing to sue Mike Postle or Stones because I had no damages. Right. But uh, as an observer to it, I, I didn't really like the settlement involving Stones and Justin Caradus because a very token amount of money – was given something like a few hundred bucks for each person for each plaintiff that uh, was willing to agree to the settlement. Some did and some didn't. Some opted out of it, but the settlement on the other side agreed to a statement that uh, no evidence was found that anything wrong was happening at Stones, or and and that no evidence was found that Justin Caradus had any kind of uh, involvement in this. So basically, for very little money, these people were putting out a statement that they believed that it was all fine. It didn't directly say that. It didn't say anything about Postle specifically. But the statement did say that they have agreed that Stones and, and Justin Caradus were basically innocent in this situation. And they also agreed that they were never going to disparage either of those parties. The only thing they didn't agree to was about Postle himself because he wasn't part of this por portion of the lawsuit. This was a suit against uh, Stones and Caradus, and the Postle separate suit had already been dismissed. So they were still allowed to say what they wanted about Postle, but they no longer could say anything disparaging about Stones or Caradus, despite the fact that they obviously believed otherwise, these people. So they, for a few hundred dollars each, they took this, which was pretty shocking to me. And in fact, some of the people who took this money were ones who purported to be successful poker pros. So I'm thinking, wait, for a few hundred dollars, you <laughs> you sell out like that? Because regardless of what was really happening there, maybe Stones was innocent. Maybe Caradus was innocent. I don't know. Maybe they were, maybe they weren't. But if you believe that they weren't innocent to the point where you actually sue them, and then as a settlement for a few hundred bucks, you put out a statement that they are innocent, that that really seems like you're putting your name on something you really don't believe to get a very token sum of money. And in my opinion, unless you're about to be evicted and thrown out on the street uh, and, and you can't eat, I would never sell that for a few hundred bucks, regardless of uh, how much money I have. And this provided a degree of protection for Postal, even though you noted he wasn't part of the settlement. Suddenly, all of these people who to the extent there were victims, you know, if we were to assume that cheating occurred, although, you know, again, it, it hasn't been proven one way or the other, but 
the victims have all settled with the casino and said there was no wrongdoing. So that, in some ways, for him, could be the end of the matter. Right. Uh, it's it's definitely something he could use in his defense that uh, people who were previously suing Stones and Justin Caradus were actually signed a document stating that uh, they they agree that nothing was found that was out of the ordinary there upon investigation. Now, you may wonder what investigation was done. Well, I don't know exactly what investigation was done, but uh, uh, Stones hired an investigator to look into this internally, but of course this is someone working for them. There was never any kind of reliable investigation to where any evidence would have been preserved. So whatever was or wasn't happening there, it was basically impossible to tell much after the fact. Once uh, it, It's basically the, uh, the chain of evidence problem. And uh, in this type of thing, you have to not touch any of it and have someone neutral come in and examine. And even then, sometimes they can't find it. But uh, that's the only way that any kind of investigation of their system could yield anything that would either uh, uh, confirm or exonerate them in these uh, accusations. But you you can't do this uh, a while later when those who were accused had access to modifying things if they want, if they were guilty. So to me, any kind of investigation being done, which uh, uh, yeah, especially by a party that they hired to do it for them, uh, is one you really can't trust, regardless of what had really happened there. That uh, the the whole investigation that was done is something that simply can't be trusted based upon the timing and even uh, who was paying the bills. So, uh, but even again, even if a neutral person came in, if it was too late, there's nothing they're going to find. So this this is one of these things where if it's not where without any kind of warning where all of a sudden it's shut down, they have no access to change or modify anything, and, and uh, someone neutral could examine it. Short of that, which isn't what happened, uh, any kind of uh, forensic investigation of this is mostly useless. So that was what was based upon the statement that was put forward by in this lawsuit, this lawsuit which uh, Stones and Caradis were the defendants. And uh, but but of course, the average person who reads, it's not going to know all this. They're just going to see that the plaintiffs are certifying that uh, they that as the result of an extensive investigation, no evidence was found of wrongdoing on the part of Stones or Caradis, And they're agreeing with this. So that looks not only pretty bad for the plaintiffs that makes them look like sore losers, but also it makes it look a lot better for Mike Possel because it, it's implied if nothing was found, then. He probably didn't do anything, which that it didn't mean that, but that's what it looks like. The truth is exactly so. The eighty-seven potential victims made this token settlement. Um, We're in mid twenty twenty now. So what happened next? Well, it wasn't all eighty-seven. Some of them took it. Some of them didn't. Some of them felt like I did. Like there's no way I'm I'm signing something I don't agree with and would never want my name on publicly because it's a very public. Interesting. This this isn't like uh, uh, taking a lesser settlement than you want in a personal injury lawsuit where there's no public implication. The public was watching this real closely. It was a huge story. So they're actually putting their name on a very public story, uh, certifying something they likely don't believe uh, to pocket a few hundred dollars, which is pretty amazing to me. But anyway, uh, there were several who felt like I do on this and said, no way, I'm not signing that. I don't 
believe anything in this statement. So uh, while I can't uh, prove that anything happened there, I am definitely not putting anything that I agree that everything's fine. So they these people just opted out of it. And uh, and and anyway, after that, the whole case was dropped, even for the people who didn't agree to the settlement. And that was that. So at that point, which I think was probably like in September, uh, the whole thing was pretty much over from a legal standpoint. But a new thing came up going the other way. On October 1st, 2020, and this is where my biggest part came in, unfortunately, there was a lawsuit filed by Mike Possle in Sacramento court for defamation against about a dozen defendants. And I was one of the people named. And in fact, I was one of the least prominent people named. And also, my part in it was probably the least among everybody named, which was a little baffling to me because remember, I wasn't even there at the beginning. For the first week or so of this, I wasn't commenting at all because I just wasn't available to do it. And by the time I got involved, this was a huge story. I've said before, if I was never born, this whole thing would have played out the exact same way in the public. It's not like I pushed this story to become huge. By the time I got involved, it was already huge, and I really had very little impact on it. Uh, the people so who... Let, let me back up just for one second. He made It was a defamation claim against you and a, and a bunch of other defendants. Yes. Um, so defamation is when someone sort of says something that is false and negative about someone else publicly, and that statement, that false statement, causes the person damages. So so is that what Mike Postel was claiming here, that you and others said false, negative things about him? Yes, that's exactly what he was saying, that uh, we had said uh, false things about him that were defamatory and that uh, it caused him all kinds of damages, and he wanted uh, $330 million. And the people who were sued were uh, Veronica Brill, the original uh, whistleblower in this whole thing in September 2019, uh, Joey Ingram, who I mentioned with the, pod with the video uh, broadcast, uh, Daniel Negranu, very, very famous poker player who commented on this, uh, Poker News, a very big site that provides, as you might guess, poker news, uh, Crush Live Poker, which is a training site uh, that is uh, run by Bart Hansen. Uh, Jonathan Little Holdings, which is uh, another poker training site that went over Mike Postle's hands, run by Jonathan Little, a well-known player. Uh, Solve for Why Academy, run by Matt Berkey, again, a well-known player that's running a, a, a training site that uh, did analysis on this. Uh, Run It Once, run by very well-known player Phil Galfond, who also uh, did analysis on this, and me. Oh, and sorry, one other thing, ESPN. I can't forget about them. They were sued as well. So. so the defendants to this lawsuit were you, a slew of the most famous poker players in the world, along with their sort of websites and ESPN, all yes. for saying essentially similar things that your opinion was that this was not on the up and up. His play on the stream, there, there had to be something going on there. Yeah, it was it was basically suing everybody for saying something was really weird about this stream and and his play is just so non-standard and so hard to believe that it could be this perfect for a year and a half uh, it, it, that it's very hard to believe this was legitimate. And that was everybody's opinion at the time that was expressed. And uh, um, and then he, he sued everybody based upon this. And this was filed on October 1st, 2020. Now, I found out about this on October 1st, 2020. You might wonder how I found out so fast. 
Well, because of the extensive publicity of this entire matter that had occurred prior to October 1st, 2020, over the past year, remember this was called out in late September 2019, and uh, Mike Postle himself appeared on a, a podcast of another famous poker pro named uh, uh, Mike Mattisau and tried to defend himself on that podcast. Uh, in my opinion, he didn't really answer to very much, but he did spend some time on there making various statements. And uh, he he was, uh, he was did a newspaper interview in September of 2020. So he was, he was going to be, he's claiming he was going to be part of an upcoming documentary about the whole situation. So, and I know the documentary was real. It didn't come out yet, but there was, I, I know which company was behind it. The guy who was uh, in charge of that company confirmed it. So this became a very big story. And especially in the Sacramento area, it was actually covered in the local Sacramento newspapers. So someone who was aware of this in the Sacramento area, whose job was to look at uh, court cases that were coming through to see if there's anything interesting to uh, report back to area attorneys. This is someone who is not a court employee, but someone who examines the cases that come through the court for a living. He recognized Mike Postle's name right away and the names of all these uh, famous poker pros. And uh, he let me know that this was happening and sent me the front page of the complaint. And I saw I was part of it and I was not very happy about that because nobody likes to find out that they are a defendant in a big lawsuit. <laughs> you see $330 million, you're being sued, whether it's a frivolous case or not. And I believed it was a very frivolous case, but regardless, you have to take the time money and effort and stress in defending such a thing. So I was very unhappy to see that I was uh, being sued here for this. And uh, of course, I thought, okay, well, I'm going to have to get an attorney and defend myself and uh, it's going to cost money and it's going to be very stressful, but I got to do what I got to do. So, so you had the, the correct reaction when anybody is sued, which is, well, I'm not happy about this, but the first step is to go get a lawyer. Right. And uh, what was unusual about this one is usually you find out you're being sued because someone serves you. And here, nobody had been served. I had found out the exact day it was filed by someone who had just uh, seen it come through and recognized the names. But I did know and I did verify even with the court that I was a named defendant in a $330 million lawsuit. So as you said, I chose right then to get an attorney. I didn't want to wait until I was served. I wanted to jump on this right away and uh, get this taken care of. Uh, I knew. Needless a little to bit say, you don't have three hundred thirty million dollars. So, if he no. were to actually win, it would be a disaster. Yes, yes. So I, and not only that, if I were to apply for a loan for anything, there, there's a lot of times I would have to disclose this, where this could be uh, detrimental for me, and I may not get approved for a loan. They, uh, this is something that needs to be disclosed, and I don't want it hanging over my head. One, just for reasons of stress. And two, because I, I don't want this interfering in real life things I'm doing and having a huge lawsuit that I have to disclose everywhere. So I wanted out of this as soon as possible. And I immediately thought of the likely way out of this because I know some stuff about defamation law in California, even though I'm not an attorney. And that is uh, using the uh, anti-slap provisions in California law to get this dismissed uh, fairly quickly. So, so let me let me just set out what anti-slap is for um, our listeners that haven't d done much defamation law. 
SLAP stands for Strategic Lawsuit Against Public Participation. And the idea is that in the US, we have the First Amendment, we have free speech. And so certain states have enacted these rules where if someone makes a defamation claim, it has to have merit. If the claim doesn't have merit and it's not a good defamation claim, then sometimes it can be subject to what's called an anti-slap motion, which the defendant can bring and say, this defamation lawsuit has no merit. It's trying to restrict, restrict my speech on a matter of public importance. And since it has no merit and since it's restricting my speech on a matter of public importance, I should get my attorney's fees for having to defend this claim. And especially in California, there is a law that makes that very available to defendants um, when a defamation claim doesn't have minimal merit. That's what's often used. They call it the minimal merit standard. The plaintiff that's suing for defamation needs to show that their lawsuit has some merit or else they risk anti-slap damages. So, so presumably this is the first thing you spoke with your attorney about. Yes. Uh, I, I immediately asked him, is this something we can do? And he said, yes. So I asked him, okay, well, I assume we have to wait until I'm served, right? And he said, no, we can do it right now. We can do it right away. But there are a few steps beforehand that we have to do. We can't just go file this tomorrow. But uh, but we, don't ha we do not have to wait until you're actually served. He told me that he can actually contact Mike Postle's attorney, who is named uh, Stephen Lowe, that uh, strangely enough was based out of Beverly Hills, even though none of this has to do with the L.A. area. That happened to be where I'm from, but um, most of these defendants are not, so it's not about where I am. But for whatever reason, Mike Postle in Sacramento hired this Beverly Hills firm called Lowe & Associates, but my attorney said that he could contact uh, Lowe & Associates and basically accept service on my behalf where I don't have to physically be served and we can just get going with the whole process. So that's what he did. Uh, the attorney I retained is named uh, Eric Benzamokin. Uh, actually, I, it's, I'm mispronouncing his name. I, I like to call him that as kind of a joke on my show, but it, the real pronunciation is Eric Benzamokin. And he runs a, a law firm also out of Beverly Hills. And he's someone I actually got to know through my own show where he was a listener to my show and he had uh, emailed me that he enjoyed it and we got to know each other. So he was the first person I went to because I, I knew that uh, he was uh, seemed like a pretty good attorney to me, seemed very knowledgeable in my conversations with him. So I, I went to him and after some discussion with him, even though he is not uh, specializing in this area, I decided that I'm going to retain him. So I officially retained Eric and uh, he contacted Lowe and Associates and accepted service on my behalf. And uh, he let them know right away. We we never were trying to spring surprises on them. We let them know right away that what I want is to be dropped off. And that uh, if they could dismiss me off the suit with prejudice, meaning they can't refile against me, that if they do that, then we will not bring any kind of uh, demand for attorney's fees, that we will eat the attorney's fees which had been spent, which had been uh, incurred thus far if he drops me out of it. And we were not demanding he drop the entire suit. We were basically saying drop me out, especially because of everything listed, of all these defendants listed there, I was the one who had the least involvement in this. I, I, I'm not nearly as big of a name as all these other poker pros listed. I didn't get involved until a week later. 
I was never a major person covering this entire thing. So why am I even here, basically? And one, I didn't do anything wrong. Two, even if you think I did anything wrong, I was a very minor part of this. So either way, I shouldn't be part of this. So we we asked, drop me out. And we stated right up front that if I'm not dropped out, that we will file an anti-slap motion to get me dropped out. And then Mike will be on the hook for my attorney's fees. Because so the, why why did you think that you had grounds for an anti-slap motion? In other words, let's hear this investigation. It showed, you know, we don't think it showed that he was completely innocent, but it didn't find wrongdoing. All these people said that he, you know, that their opinion was that he was a cheater. Why was it that you and your attorney and others had the opinion that this lawsuit doesn't even have minimal merit and, and anti-slap damages are warranted here? Well, there's a few reasons. Uh, first of all, in order to have a successful defamation suit, you, you have to prove that what the person was saying was false. And uh, uh, I and the others who made the statements we did, uh, we didn't believe we made any false statements. These were unflattering statements about Mr. Postle, but they were not false in our opinion. And we still felt they were not false. And uh, we thought that if this were to be litigated, we could show it wasn't false. But it wasn't just that. Mike was what was known as a public figure and maybe a limited purpose public figure, maybe a general one, but but definitely at least a limited purpose public figure, which means a public figure in a certain uh, area. Uh, in this case, it would be poker. He was a poker public figure, which very much changes in California uh, the standard for defamation, because if somebody is a public figure, then in order to win a defamation suit, for this public figure, for them to win, they have to prove what's known as actual malice, which means that the person not only made a false statement that was defamatory, but that they knew it was false when they said it. And and, and the reason for this higher standard, this higher standard that's applied to public figures is because, you know, in the U.S., everyone can have opinions on matters of public importance. We can say what we want about the president and, you know the um, professional athletes and other other people that are that are in the public. But maybe it's not as good to express to, um, negative opinions about somebody that's keeping a low profile that isn't trying to be sort of a matter of public concern. Right. So we were saying that Mike Postle definitely threw himself into being a public figure, that he not only appeared on the stream, but he allowed them to promote him as this amazing poker player. In fact, in Mike's own words on this podcast he appeared on, this Mike Mattisau podcast in October of uh, 2019, he actually said that he allowed Stones to portray him as a wonder boy. These were his own words. And that to portray him as the greatest ever. This is not my opinion. This, this was his own words on the podcast after the scandal broke, explaining that he knowingly allowed Stones to promote him as the greatest ever in order to draw interest to their stream and to get people down there to play. So when he does this, and he does this for a year and a half, he is knowingly throwing himself into being a limited purpose public figure in poker to where people, of course, are going to comment on why he's so good, why he's winning so much, why he is so amazing. This was, it's not like he was playing in a home game and someone found out and were spreading rumors about him. This was on a broadcasted stream that he knew was going to be broadcasted and that he actually said he intentionally allowed Stones to promote him 
as an amazing figure in poker who's the greatest ever. So, so since he chose to publicly thrust himself into this limelight, it is less legally permissible for him to then say, well, you can't say anything bad about me because he's the one that chose to elevate himself into that sort of public figure status. Yes, exactly. And especially once I heard that podcast, I mean, I thought this anyway, I thought there was a very good case to be made that he was uh, a public figure and that he was uh, intentionally being part of it. And he would be in interviews there about why he's so good and uh, his thought process. And so there was plenty even without that podcast appearance. But when he appeared on the podcast, admitting that he went along with the narrative that he's the greatest ever that Stones was pushing, that he he did this so they would get people to come down there and watch the stream. I said, okay, I can't imagine a court looking at this and not deeming him at the very least a limited purpose public figure, which at that point pretty much destroys all of his claims unless he could say that people were making these claims on purpose knowing they were false, which just wouldn't make any sense for right. just about all the defendants, especially me who never knew him and had no ax to grind with him. So you use the phrase actual malice. So this is a legal term of art where if someone is a public figure or a limited purpose public figure under defamation law, then statements can be made about them and they can't get damages for defamation under certain states rules unless the statement is made with what's called actual malice, which you defined a moment ago. It, it, it means that the person saying the so-called defamatory statement needs to know that it's false or act with reckless disregard for whether it's false. It's a very high standard and a very difficult standard for plaintiffs to prove. And especially, as you said, in this case, because there is absolutely no way that you and ESPN and all these others could provably have known that it's that what you were saying about whether he cheated or not was false. In fact, we still certainly don't know whether or not it's false. And as you said, you strongly still suspect that what you said was true. Right. So under that standard, this was going to fail every time. And uh, this looked like an extremely frivolous case. And not just in my opinion, I asked for my attorney's opinion. He said, this is a completely frivolous case. This is exactly the type of thing that the anti-slap legislation was written for. This is exactly the type of thing it's meant to stop. So we told his attorneys that this is what we we're going to do. We told them their case is incredibly weak and frivolous, and it's going to fail when it gets to the anti-slap motion, which we are going to file. And that really his best course of action is to drop me out of it, and we won't go after him for any fees. And he said no. His attorneys brought it to him, and he said no. So that was that. We gave him his chance to get out of it. So. I was not trying to run up his attorney's fees. It's not like we were trying to see whatever way we could do to run up fees uh, defending this and win the anti-slap and then get attorney's fees and say, ha, 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 look what we got here. We tried to get out of this. We tried to get out of this and even cost him zero money. Even though he hit me with a frivolous lawsuit, a super frivolous lawsuit, I was willing to spend the money I had spent at the beginning to uh, have my attorney research all of this and then – make the offer to them. And this was in the uh, meet and confer, the required meet and confer at the beginning where uh, the two attorneys had to get together, the two sides get together and try to maybe come to some kind of agreement to not waste the court's time. So that's what we offered. Dismiss me with prejudice from the case and we won't come after you for any fees. And he said no. 
So that was that. So we said, okay, we're going to go forward with the anti-slap. So they knew exactly what was coming. We did exactly what we said we would do the entire way. And uh, we filed the anti-slap motion. And then we had a series of delays. Then we had, uh, not on our end, we, we did not want this delayed. Remember, I have this $330 million lawsuit against me hanging over my head. I want this over as soon as possible. I think I'm going to win. I think I've got an excellent chance to win when this uh, anti-slap motion is heard, but I want this done. I don't want this dragging way into 2021. So w this was scheduled, but then a number of weird things happened. And I, I don't know if you want to interject anything else before I tell you what happened next. No, tell us what happened. Okay. So the first surprise was number one, nobody was served. It's understandable that when I found out about it on the day it was filed, nobody was served, but then months passed and nobody was served. So we what does that mean for nobody to be served? Well, I that was that was very peculiar. I'd never seen this before. I've never even heard of this before, where a lawsuit is filed for this amount of money and nobody is served, including the corporate defendants like Poker News and ESPN, who are very easy to serve because you don't have to track them down at their house and find them and serve them. This is super simple to serve a corporation. And even they weren't served. So service I, means essentially having somebody deliver a copy of the case initiating documents to the defendant to give them the sort of official notice that a lawsuit has been filed. Um, th that's really all you're talking about when you're talking about service. Yes. And, and as I was saying, serving individuals like me, sometimes it can be challenging to find them and, uh, reach them to serve them, but corporations super easy. So here two months went by, we're into December of, uh, 2020 and nobody has been served, not even the corporations. And I'm thinking this is so bizarre. Now we had already taken action by this point because my attorney forced them to serve us basically by uh, calling up his attorney saying, I accept service on behalf of Todd Wittellis as his attorney. And at that point, they don't have to physically serve me anymore. But that that doesn't really mean that I was served in a traditional way. They made no effort to serve anybody. We basically served ourselves. So nobody who didn't do this was served. Why might that be? Why would you file a lawsuit and not serve anyone? That's what I wondered. So I thought maybe this whole thing, he doesn't plan to see all the way through, and this is just a scare tactic, or maybe that he is uh, trying to do this for the documentary that he claimed is coming up, that uh, he wants to be able to say on the documentary that there's a $330 million lawsuit, but he doesn't want to take it beyond that. Uh, maybe he's just screwing with us. I don't know. I still don't know. I still don't have any idea what the plan was here to file this type of lawsuit and then just sit there and not serve anybody. So we're in December. Nobody's been served, which is really peculiar. And then a bomb drops. And that is that his attorneys have filed paperwork to get off the case and no longer represent him because they actually have to do this. They can't just say we quit. Uh, once they're representing him, they have to be dismissed by the court. So in the paperwork, they said that they had not been able to communicate with him for a month since November, since like a month before they filed this, I think November 3rd or something, they said was the last time they were able to reach him. Uh, it's also possible he wasn't paying them any further, but the paperwork didn't say that. But what it definitely did say that his attorneys, uh, Lowe and Associates filed was that they could not communicate with him and therefore he was violating the agreement that he had with them and they wanted off the case. And this was scheduled for uh, January to be heard. 
uh, we had an anti-slap motion that was also for January. And uh, we had a feeling that because of this, it probably wasn't going to be heard then. And sure enough, uh, since they hadn't been dismissed from the case, he did want them to file for a continuance, a delay in hearing the anti-slap motion because of this matter of dropping his attorneys or his attorneys actually dropping themselves off the case. So I asked my attorney, what do we do about this? Do we oppose this? Do we try to just hope, you know, hope this is heard when we want it to be heard and, and get this done sooner? And he said, no, we need to agree to this because uh, it's very unlikely the court with his attorneys leaving, if they grant this, is they're going to make him show up and defend this anti-slap with no representation. They could, but it's very likely that the court is uh, not going to grant this. So um, we might as well just uh, agree to this and uh, agree to some, some sort of reasonable delay while he finds new counsel. We weren't sure if he was going to find new counsel, but that's what he was claiming. So he said, let's, uh, my attorney said, you know, let's just uh, not even challenge this and agree, but just agree to something reasonable, not a super long delay, but agree to something reasonable and, uh, and have this uh, delay pretty much very likely to go through with both sides agreeing. So that's what happened. Uh, the attorneys were dismissed from the case in January. And we agreed. And then there was a hearing where it was discussed how long the delay would be. I think he wanted 120 days. And my attorney said, no way. Uh, at this point, Veronica Brill, the original whistleblower, she also retained an attorney. And uh, they basically took the same route as we did. We did it first, but they basically took the same route, which is a pretty obvious route. Of filing uh, an anti-slot motion. Right. So, so they also had their matter on calendar. And the judge decided to give him about a month. So then another month passes by, and then uh, he says, I, I can't find an attorney. I, I need another delay. So we, this one, we said no, and it got delayed again to March. So uh, here we are now with the anti-slap hearing in March. And then once again, still he's not represented by anybody at this point. He has not found another attorney in all this time. And he's known since December that his attorneys uh, filed to get off the case and were likely to get off. Here we are in March and he's back in court saying, I still need more time. And to us, this seemed absurd. It seemed like he's just dragging this out. You know, how, how long does it take? Either you're going to get counsel or you're not. And he said, well, COVID is one of the reasons. Well, COVID was very present in October when he filed the lawsuit. For some reason, he was able to get an attorney then, not even the local one. He was able to get a Beverly Hills attorney in October right in the height of COVID. So I don't know why COVID was a factor here. But it seemed like he was doing things to maybe delay, perhaps recognizing that your anti-slap motion was a concern. Yeah, it, it was it was running up more fees too, which I don't know if that's why he was doing it. But I, of course, this is costing more money to have my attorney having to keep appearing at these hearings about the delays. And the, the longer this drags on, the higher the fees go up, which... Uh, he'll ultimately be responsible for if I end up winning the anti-slap motion. So he actually got granted this delay, which looked like the, for the final time. The, the judge didn't say it's going to be final, but my attorney said this is probably going to be the last one that's granted. And he said that probably the judge granted this uh, last delay, this one that was in uh, uh, March of, of 2021 to a month later for April. That the reason that 
this was granted, uh, this is just my attorney's guess, was that the judge really wanted to give him a chance to get counsel and not have to face this anti-slap with no attorney. She just really wanted, because he's an individual with no counsel, to really, really just make sure he has every chance to get one. But there's only so far this can go. So my attorney said this is probably the last one that's going to be granted, even if he comes back in April and says, I still need more time, that's going to be it. Because he he got so many different uh, continuances here trying to find an attorney. And there were all these different excuses presented. And I don't know how many were true and how many weren't true, but they, they didn't seem like very strong excuses to me. It kind of seemed like the dog ate my homework variety. So anyway... Oh. Yeah, so he also, so he doesn't get he doesn't get counsel. He delays for a while. So so what happened next? What 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 was our uh, what was the conclusion to this saga? Well, the conclusion was also kind of weird. On April first, and I had to check this wasn't an April Fool's joke. We got <laughs> notification that he dropped the case. He dropped the entire case, not just dropped me from it. He dropped the entire case without prejudice, so he could technically refile, but he dropped the entire case. So and he so probably I, realized at the time, presumably, that maybe this $330 million defamation lawsuit wasn't a great idea. Yes, and um, the one thing I didn't understand, and I asked my attorney right away, I said, does he get out of the anti-slap now? I, am I not gonna be able to get our attorney's fees this way? Because uh, does this just end the whole thing and we're stuck with the fees, or is it, uh, uh, does this continue? And my attorney said, let me look into this. And he said, no, he doesn't get out of this, that what's going to happen is that even though the case is dropped, that we still get to have a hearing for the attorney's fees based upon whether or not the anti-slap motion would have likely prevailed. And that this strongly indicates that it probably would have, because by him dropping the case, it's almost like an admission that uh, he didn't feel that he was going to prevail there. So that strongly already influences the result there by him dropping the case. I did wonder, why did he do this? Why not, even if he ha can't get an attorney or can't afford one or whatever the case might be, why doesn't he just show up on April 18th when the anti-slap hearing was to take place? Why not just show up in pro per representing himself and try his best to, to beat it? He probably was not going to be successful, but by by dismissing it, uh, that really makes it highly likely that the same result, basically, that he's going to owe the attorney's fees, uh, was going to come anyway. So it looked like he was lowering his chances to avoid the attorney's fees by dropping it 17 days before the anti-slap hearing. So I thought that was a very bizarre action on his part. I still don't understand it. Keep in mind, on April 1st, which is exactly six months to the day since he filed the lawsuit, that nobody had been served. Of all those defendants, the only two who ever had any kind of action with him were me and Veronica because we retained attorneys who accepted service on their own. But not a single defendant was served in six months, including the corporate defendants who were very easy to serve. So something was really fishy. I've never seen in my life a case that has gone on for six months after being filed and nobody was served when corporate defendants are involved. It was bizarre. I still don't understand it unless, unless he never really intended to push it forward. 
It is possible that he got bad legal advice. Maybe he was told that uh, if he doesn't serve anybody that uh, the anti-slap can't be filed, which, of course, wasn't true. Maybe he was told on April 1st if he drops it that the anti-slap can't go forward. That also wasn't true. I mean, technically, it can't go forward, but the attorney's fees portion can. So, and that's the main reason that you you don't want to lose one of those. So I, it looks like maybe he got bad legal advice or or maybe he didn't get bad legal advice and just assumed the wrong things. There's a lot of things that are very mysterious here in this case, uh, the non-service, the, the dropping of the case, the not communicating with his attorneys after filing the case, a lot of weird non-standard things that occurred here. But the bottom line was that he was going to have to face up to what he had done here, and he was going to have to uh, deal with the fact that it was likely that attorney's fees were going to be granted to me and to Veronica against him. So – we filed immediately to have this heard, and the court date of May 12, 2021 was given for this, and Mike did appear in that one. He did appear, and uh, last I saw, it was on YouTube. Technically, you're not supposed to record it. It says that at the bottom, do not record, so I was not going to record it or broadcast it anywhere because uh, I, I wasn't going to violate the court's wishes. But uh, someone apparently did and slapped it up on YouTube. It's, it's no one I know, but I, I don't I, – in fact, I don't even know who did it. It's just some random who did it in poker. Uh, as far as I know, it's still up there. But he appeared, and you can see on, on the uh, – and I watched it as it occurred live on May 12th. But it was uh, the judge and my attorney and Mike all in a Zoom court hearing and uh, – Mike was uh, – it was very strange because he spent most of the time rambling about matters of the case and wasn't – And at this point, there is no case. The only case is your attorney's fees because he dropped the case, right? So, so it was just – by state law, by California state law, that uh, if it is decided – and by the way, the day before the Zoom hearing, the judge actually posted what her preliminary decision was that, that – the anti-slap would have likely prevailed and that attorney's fees were going to be granted. And we had asked for $43,000, which wouldn't have been as high had he not kept delaying it. Let but me just clarify. This is a peculiarity of California in particular, where judges will post the day before or slightly before a court hearing their sort of preliminary ruling. Now, this can change after they hear argument uh, from the parties and from the lawyers, but nine times out of ten, the the court sticks with that preliminary ruling. This doesn't happen in other states. For example, in New York, where I'm based, we don't get those. When we go into an argument, it's just it's called. You're just in the argument with the judge. But in California, they give these preliminary rulings, and and so you got a favorable one. So presumably, you were going in uh, feeling very good about your case. Right. So I, I didn't know about this either until it happened. I was very surprised when my attorney sent me this preliminary ruling the day before. I thought I was going to be finding out uh, on May 12th, not May 11th. But on May 11th, I, I saw what the judge wrote. And the only thing that wasn't completely favorable to us in what she wrote was that the attorney's fees were excessive in some areas, in her opinion. And she reduced them from 43000 to about uh, twenty six five plus almost $500 in court costs. So we got almost twenty-seven k in that preliminary ruling, but that my attorney had the opportunity to show up to the actual hearing on May 12th, as did Mike Postle, and dispute this preliminary ruling. So 
what was odd was that Mike was kind of trying to litigate the case, which had been dropped, rather than talking about uh, whether attorney's fees should be granted or uh, why it should be $27,000 or not be $27,000, why it should be less. So oddly, Mike spent a lot of time talking. My attorney spent very little time talking. Mike spent most of the time talking, but mostly about things that were about the case he had already dropped. And the judge kept trying to get him back on track and saying, no, 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 we're, we're not hearing that now. You dropped the case. This is just about the fees. This is a narrow element of the case we're hearing about here is about the fees. And I'm required by law to grant fees if I determine that the anti-slap would have likely prevailed. And by you dropping the case, uh, you, you basically made it very easy for me to determine that the anti-slap would have likely prevailed. So uh, we're trying to figure out the fees here. And she asked him, do you have anything to present that you could show that these fees are excessive of what I granted, of the 27K that was granted? And so he said, well, I've spoken to some attorneys. They said this is too much. He didn't name which attorneys. He didn't provide any evidence that he had these conversations. And she said, well, but do you have any legal precedent that you'd like to present that would get these this reduced? And he said, no, no, I don't. So that was pretty much that. So she upheld what she wrote the day before. We got the exact uh, – award of attorney's fees of somewhere 26,000 something at plus the 400 something of uh, court costs, which gets very near 27,000. And my attorney actually did not challenge the reduction. He said that while he was uh, disappointed with the quote haircut that she gave the fees that, uh, that he accepts the reduction and is not going to challenge it. And, and I, we, we were fine with that. We, we're hoping to get more, but uh, uh, basically she didn't state an exact reason that it was reduced. Uh, it was talked about a little bit in this preliminary uh, decision that she wrote up the day before, but uh, my attorney said that the uh, reason that it may have been reduced was that my part in this was much less than someone like Veronica, who's the original whistleblower, or someone like uh, Doug Polk and Joey Ingram, who didn't uh, have an anti-slap motion because the, you know, the case has been dropped and they, they were never served, so they didn't do anything. But that my part was so small that it looked like the judge felt that there was less time required to research it and things like that. So we didn't agree with that because if you're part of it, you're part of it and you've got to do full research on the entire matter. But uh, it, he guessed that that was part of the reason she reduced it and also maybe just because he's an individual and uh, she doesn't want to saddle him with with too much money here. So she it looks like she reduced it to something she thought was reasonable in her opinion. And we decided that uh, we're not going to contest it. We'll just accept the reduction of uh, of the fees. But as it stands right now, Mike Postle does owe me that money. There is so you a, got a judgment for yeah, that amount of attorney's fees against him. Yes. And what's even though you weren't the one that filed the lawsuit, it was his lawsuit. Well, here's what's so bizarre. And I thought about this afterwards. I thought, this is so weird. If you asked me to name a thousand poker players that would be the first to get a judgment against Mike Postle about this whole matter, I would never have named myself. Because why would I be part of it? I was not part of that game. I never played in that game. I wasn't part of anyone calling this out in like the first week that the whole scandal broke. I, I joined into this later. I was always kind of on the sidelines. I was really a nobody in this whole situation. And somehow the only person so far 
to get a judgment against him was me because he filed a frivolous lawsuit against me, which I defended through anti-slap, and then he dropped his case, and then I won the attorney's fees because it was determined that I would have likely prevailed. Now, you may wonder about Veronica and what's happened with her. She had a hearing scheduled for May 19th, and I was presuming that I was going to get on YouTube. You can actually watch these these hearings on YouTube since they're Zoom hearings, and the court actually will post the link to watch it. So I was expecting to watch this on May 19th. This However, is May 20th. We're recording. So this was just yesterday. It was just yesterday, right. Uh, what ended up happening was it got canceled by the court. This is one delay that actually is not Mike Postle's doing. Uh, Mike Postle didn't ask for a delay, nor did Veronica. What happened was the court itself decided to delay this matter until June 16th to decide on her attorney's fees. Now, her attorney's fees are almost double what mine were. Hers were $78,000, and that was partially because she retained a firm that's a specialist in First Amendment issues. So they're more expensive, and there probably was some more work to do because uh, she was a greater part of this whole matter. She was the original whistleblower, and she appeared on many podcasts talking about him. So she she was a central figure in this whole thing, unlike me. I, I still don't think she did anything wrong, but I'm saying that as far as uh, if – in the whole matter, I was a very, very peripheral figure, and she was not. She was a central figure. So uh, it's understandable that there was some more work to do involving her, and she hired a more expensive firm. And still, uh, it is $78,000 that they're asking for against an individual in anti-slap. So the judge probably wants more time to review it. She did pretty thoroughly go through my attorney's bills and – that's what she used to reduce it. So she did not give a reason it was delayed until June 16th by the court, delayed almost a full month, but that I asked my attorney about it. And he said he's presuming that the judge just wants more time to carefully go over the entire bill and come to a number that she th thinks is fair. So we won't find out that portion of it until June 16th, provided it doesn't get delayed again. But this is the one and only delay that's occurred by the court and not by uh, Mike Postle. This this whole story, you know, as a lawyer, this whole story just rings like a tremendous cautionary tale for uh, why people, one, should always consult competent counsel with any sort of legal issue, and two, um, be careful with their decision-making and, and think about their decision-making because here it seems like he rushed into a giant lawsuit, and now he's really paying the price. And you, who didn't want to be any part of a lawsuit, um, have a judgment against him. Right. And we wondered right at the beginning, with all these defendants, including some that can run up some very high bills like ESPN, who have the, all these attorneys working for them that are expensive, we thought – he could be on the hook for a tremendous sum of money if all of these defendants, if all 12 defendants here end up filing their own anti-slap motions and all winning, he could be on the hook for like high six figures in, in what he owes, or at least mid six figures, it, which mm -hmm. is, is an incredible amount of money to have to owe over uh, attorney's fees because you filed a lawsuit. So 
in California, especially with such strong anti-slap legislation, because every state doesn't have this. A lot of states don't. But California has the strongest anti-slap legislation. So I thought, how does he do this in California? I know he had to do it in California because that's where he is. Uh, but uh, and that's where some of the defendants are, including me. Like, I, I don't believe where the I events could, took place. too. Yeah. Yeah. It's where the events took place. And I, like, I don't believe I could have been sued in any other court. Uh, because uh, maybe he could try federal, but I, I don't think he could sue me in any other state's court because it took place in California. He's in California. I'm in California. So where could any other state's involvement be? Anyway, I thought to file this in California against all these defendants in a case that can so easily be defeated by an anti-slap motion, and he could be so easily shown to be a public figure. How could he do this when it looks so likely the result is going to be that he's going to be on the hook for hundreds of thousands of dollars, especially because an anti-slap defense is something that is very, very commonly used in California. You don't need to be a genius legal mind to consider using this when a defamation lawsuit is filed against you in California. Just about every attorney will immediately go to, okay, let's file an anti-slap motion. Some of the some of the anti-slap motions are not very good, and some of them do not hold up. But this, as my attorney even wrote. In our response, this case is tailor-made for the anti-slap motions to succeed. This is exactly why they wrote the law in the first place for cases just like these. So we never understood why he did this and and what kind of advice he got that would have uh, led him to do this and also what advice he got that would have led him to uh, believe that he could file this and not serve it and somehow not be exposed to this and, and what advice he got that would have made him drop it. And believe this lets him out of the attorney's fees, which we never heard that's why he dropped it. But I can't imagine what other reason he would have. So it's uh, – there are a lot of bizarre things that happen. And, yeah, it definitely is a cautionary tale. It definitely is something that uh, anyone, especially in California or another state where there is strong uh, anti-slap legislation, should not file any kind of defamation lawsuit, no matter how mad you are at someone else for saying bad things about you on the internet – uh, you should be very careful about filing these lawsuits until you really get a uh, an experienced attorney in this area that advises you whether you are open to such a motion and whether you're likely to be be defeated by it. And yeah, if you're and that's good advice for any lawsuit. Always, you always want to consult a competent attorney. Uh, Todd would tell us. Thank you so much for joining me. This was a, a fascinating story. Where can people find you? Well, you can go to my website, uh, pokerfraudalert.com, pokerfraudalert.com. You can also look for Poker Fraud Alert Radio, which is a podcast. We also do it live, but you can also listen in podcast form on uh, all the major podcast platforms. Uh, if you'd like to uh, find me on Twitter, it's at Todd Wittellis. That's T-O-D-D, my first name, and then W-I-T-T-E-L-E-S, my last name. I'm right there on Twitter. You can uh, tweet at me there. And uh, I, I even have a, a text number if anybody would like to contact me, which I give out publicly. It's the text number that uh, is for my show, but I also answer it every day when the show's not running. 775-372-8355 is a number you can always text me, and uh, I'll respond to you if you are curious about any of this or you'd like to figure out about uh, how to listen to my show, whatever it is. But uh, I invite everybody to go do so, and I, I'm glad this is – Probably over. Technically, he could refile against me because he dismissed it without prejudice, but we could get it dismissed again pretty quickly. So hopefully he wouldn't uh, 
waste everybody's time in doing so, including the court's time. Hopefully he has learned not to do this again. And uh, if he does, we're ready for it. And now we're just going to have to collect this money, which may or may not be a challenge. I encourage everybody to check out Todd's show, which is great. And, um, and, uh, and to stay in touch with him and hear more of these, uh, these crazy stories from the poker world. So this was an episode of The Better's Verdict. As always, this show is not intended to be legal advice. It's for entertainment purposes only. And if there's one lesson we learned from the show today, it's to uh, always seek legal advice before uh, before making any any strong legal decisions. Todd, thanks again. Yeah, thank you for having me on, Stephen.